Welcome to our podcast, Regulation Matters, A Clear Conversation. Once again, I'm your host, Lyon Dempsey. I'm currently the Chief Compliance Officer with Rickabenny Associates Family Dentistry here in North Carolina, and I'm the Chair of the National Certified Investigator Training Committee with CLEAR. As many of you may know, the Council on Licensure Enforcement and Regulation of CLEAR is an association of individuals, agencies, and organizations that comprise the international community of professional and occupational regulation. This podcast is a, an opportunity for you to hear the latest and greatest in, in our community. And um, today I'm very excited to be joined by uh, Graham Kierstead. Uh, he is with the College of Physicians and Surgeons of British Columbia, along with Barbara Holtree with the Oregon State Board of Nursing. So we're, we're really super happy to have you guys with us today. Thank, thank you very you. much, Lynn. Absolutely. And also thank you to our listeners for joining us. So today's topic of conversation is public board members and the unique role that they serve on regulatory boards and councils. Uh, I guess to start off the conversation, let me start with Barbara. Um, I guess, why do regulatory boards include public members? Well, the primary purpose of a regulatory board is, of course, to protect the public by ensuring competent practice uh, within whatever occupation is being regulated. So to that end, having a member of the public participate in the proceedings would be essential. Um, boards in the US started adding public members to regulatory boards in the 70s and 80s uh, during, a, there was a societal push for more government accountability at that time. Uh, so public members uh, were a natural uh, evolution there. Um, I know in Oregon, the, the Board of Nursing added its first public member in 1973 and added a, a second member in 1997. Um, so although they've been around for decades, um, I think uh, that the importance of public members uh, has been more of a topic of conversation in the U.S. since the uh, Supreme Court decision came down in uh, 2015 regarding the North Carolina Dental Board. Um, I think after that, a lot of uh, regulatory boards are considering whether to increase the number of public members that they have on their boards or maybe use the public members that they do have a little differently. So, Thanks for, for pointing out uh, you know, uh, the, the dental board, um, you know, I was the senior investigator for 16 years with them before uh, moving on. So glad you brought that one up. It is very important. Um, Graham, how is it different um, in Canada? Well, it's not terribly different. I don't know that we have those same long history, but it has become more formalized in, in recent uh, years and decades. Uh, in 2009, um, in health professions in British Columbia, uh, the College of Physicians and Surgeons was began to be regulated under omnibus legislation, uh, the Health Professions Act, and it required uh, no fewer than one-third public members on our board and on many committees. Uh, you know, back in the day of pure self-regulation, public members were not as common or even uh, as welcome, frankly. They weren't treated with respect or as equals by members of the profession, but they've really come into their own and have uh, found their own voice. Uh, because public members really occupy the people's seat at the table, they are as important on boards and committees as, as anyone. 
Uh, and it, it helps us to avoid the skepticism that the public interest is really being promoted um, by our boards when it's largely just members of the profession there. Uh, we've always heard the negative um, assessments of police, policing police, and I think that's true of any profession. Uh, so their prim uh, I would say that their presence primarily lends authenticity um, as we earn and hopefully maintain the public trust with every decision we make in the public interest. That's great. Well, I, I think, Graham, it, we'll just continue with you. Uh, you know, the, the role of a public member, um, is, is that actually different than that of a, a member of the profession? I certainly know how it worked with, with the dental board, but, but, but from a Canadian perspective, um, is, it, is it different? Yeah, I, I think it is different. Um, there's a difference of perspective, certainly. Uh, members of the profession, of course, uh, bring system knowledge and uh, profession-specific uh, perspectives. Um, and that, of course, is helpful when you're creating and enforcing standards of ethical performance. When you're judging, however, whether those standards are being interpreted and carried out uh, in the public interest, uh, then you really need to have the public there as well. So the public is there to make sure that all decisions are made in the public interest and not as representatives of a particular group or perspective, but from a really broad range of, of view. Um, that said, it can be really helpful to have skilled members of other professions or people with different competencies in the mix. It seems everybody wants to have uh, people with um, IT experience, uh, accountants or lawyers on their board, um, you know, those, those boards that are not regulating lawyers, accountants and IT people, um, in order to be able to give that diversity and, and particular um, point of view overall. So it's really allowing the public to sit in um, after all, this is a delegated responsibility from governments, uh, which the governments would be um, doing themselves, but for the trust that they place in the professions to play a part in it um, as a check and balance, having the public there as well allows us to really be able to carry out our work. I agree. Um, the, the public members are the public's voice uh, on a board. And... Uh, um, I know uh, when I'm orienting public members for our board, you know, I encourage them to think of their own families, you know, the grandmothers or aunts or children, um, especially when they're hearing disciplinary cases. Um, you know, put yourself in the shoes of the people who are receiving the services. Because um, it's easy for the professional members of a board to get lost in the details of a case. And public members can provide a, a good balance for, you know, uh, any possible bias that might be on the part of the professionals, um, you know, unconsciously. Barbara, let me follow up with that in that, are your public members uh, allowed to participate and, and actually vote on decisions in disciplinary hearings? Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, in fact, uh, in in Oregon, um, uh, it's Oregon has a very citizen centric uh, governance uh, uh, push, um, and I believe it was in uh, twenty. It was just a few years ago, uh, twenty twelve, um, that uh, a law was passed that when a health professional regulatory board uh, reviews any investigatory informations or reports, a pub, uh, public member must be actively involved. And some boards um, 
take that so far as to, if there isn't a public member at that particular meeting, then they don't discuss their disciplinary cases and it waits till the next meeting. Um, it's that actively involved part that is a little open to interpretation, I think, but, but definitely public members are involved uh, in listening to all of the disciplinary cases and they all vote. And that's really interesting. Uh, none of the decisions that are disciplinary bodies or our inquiry committee, which determines charging standards in relation to complaints against members of the profession, um, is able to happen without um, a public presence on the decisions. Uh, so our, our disciplinary hearing bodies are typically uh, two professionals, one member of the public and one lawyer. Um, so the lawyer acts as um, legal counsel for the decision-making body itself and, and will assist with writing the decision. But when you look at it, it's based, that takes it to 50% members of the profession and 50% not. Uh, we also have a 50-50 split on our, our serious matters inquiry committee, uh, taking a look at whether or not uh, matters meet the charging standard for going to hearing. So there is a, a lot of very intentional uh, public uh, participation in uh, dealing with our most serious complaints. And that's really interesting. And I, I know some of our listeners are uh, involved in, in different jurisdictions or states that where it, it actually might be prohibited from them uh, to, to actually have an active role um, in, in a hearing. Um, so that's, that's great to hear this perspective. So I, I guess back to you, Graham, um, how many public members would you say is optional? Uh, I mean, obviously you're kind of explaining, you know, like for, for two regulatory uh, members, there's a, a public member, but uh, I guess expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I will. And I think that it's, I, my opinion on this is informed by a recent report. Uh, the British Columbia government put together a steering committee to look at health regulation in the province. And it's certainly taken a critical look at a number of other professions as well over the years, as have many jurisdictions, to determine best practices and governance. Uh, and, and this is entirely uh, to ensure that we are governing in the public interest. Uh, so the steering committee report that was uh, issued, I believe, in very late uh, August of 2020, uh, came forward and said that we should be moving to 50-50 boards, so 50% members of the profession, 50% members of the public, um, and that wow. they be 100% appointed boards, uh, so that we would be putting together lists of people that we would want to have appointed, um, and then that would be vetted by an independent body within government, but at a bit arm's length, to determine who gets appointed to the boards. This has two huge benefits. Uh, one is that it eliminates the perspective that elected members have that they're representing some kind of a constituency rather than actually acting in the public interest at table uh, with that specific and unique lens. Uh, but for members of the public, it allows us to be able to, or allows the appointing body to be able to select uh, a diverse group of people uh, who will represent uh, multiple perspectives and bring multiple backgrounds to the table. And I think that that would create a much healthier uh, decision-making body because it would make for more robust uh, conversation and um, decision-making with more integrity. I, I like that idea of uh, diversity. We'll come back to that. Uh, Barbara, uh, what, what would you say optimal number of, of public members would be for, for you guys? I don't know if there is a specific number. Um, I really like 
hearing the 50-50 split between public members and professional members, um, we only, we have, in Oregon, it's a nine-member board. We only have two public members. Um, I think uh, most healthcare boards in the U.S. seem to average between nine or 13 members total, some more, some less. Um, and I don't think the percentage of public member to professional member is very high on any of them. Um, I could be, um, there might be some that have quite a few, but um, as far as it even approaching half, I don't, I don't think I've heard that. Um, but I think more public representation would be a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I agree with you, and, and you know, certainly from from the North Carolina perspective, it, it's similar to what you you described. So, um, Barbara, I guess is there anything in particular that you're looking for in a public member? I mean, I know that most of those are appointed, probably for a lot of the ones in the U.S. But uh, is there stuff that you, I guess, would make a, a more ideal public member? Well. I think really um, a willingness to break from the pack if necessary is a good trait to have, um, not just in a public member, but in any of the board members, but um, especially in a public member. Um, it's, um, um, it's all right to vote differently from the other members if they feel that that is the right thing for public safety. Because that's the point of the of the whole thing. Um, so I I think one of the challenges for any uh, deliberative body is to avoid groupthink, and uh, that's a particular challenge for public members who may not understand a lot of the technical aspects of the matters that are brought before them. Which is also I think really a key skill. Uh, Barbara, is to be able to identify that they're not truly understanding some of the subject matter and knowing exactly what they're meant to bring to table, which I think the primary attribute I would say would be curiosity, uh, curious, uh, real engagement through being curious at table, wanting to know what's going on and why, to be able to determine if from their own perspective as a, a consumer, and I think you know most, of it, most people are consumers of, of medical practice, uh, you know, from a consumer perspective, is this something that actually sounds right to you? Um, is mm -hmm. it being done in a way that really passes muster? Uh, would a person on the street uh, look at this decision uh, askance because they think that, well, that really serves the interest of the profession alone? Uh, so someone who is uh, committed, uh, who comes prepared, uh, who is able to be respectful and also to demand respect, um, I believe is somebody that can sit at a table and and engage fully um, and and break from the pack exactly like you've said. Brilliant. Well, Graham, um, you mentioned earlier um, diversity, uh, so I guess um, maybe a kind of a, a almost like a twofold question. Uh, you know, how do you ensure diversity um, of opinion and background? Um, obviously, that that's, that probably is very important. But also, I guess, then how do you recruit qualified public members? I think that the only reason that um, we don't have diverse boards is because of the way in which they're either appointed or elected. Uh, there's no real control over who 
um, is, is elected. And as Barbara has mentioned earlier, and as we've experienced as well, we don't always have any control or input over who's appointed to our boards as public members. Uh, and if we are to create truly diverse boards that represent uh, the entirety of the population, uh, then it's really important uh, to be able to have a lot more control over who gets appointed. So our model of coming up, I, I believe, will be of a 100% appointed board. Uh, to be able to have active input on applicants for it um, is, a, is a critical, critical part of this. Uh, so what we want to do to ensure diversity um, at the table is to really evaluate what our needs are. So what attributes would make a strong board member and, and list all of those out? And we've done this through a composition matrix that we've put together. Uh, we also take a look at what attributes make a strong board. I mean, that has the diverse experiences, backgrounds, and perspectives there. So some people would want bring different cultures to the table, different levels of education, uh, different regions of the province. I mean, everybody has rural and urban regions within their state or province, uh, sexual orientation or gender identity, um, you know, whether people come from an, an indigenous background, as an example, as well as the kinds of uh, specific professional um, expertise that they might have. Uh, whether somebody is, as I said earlier, an accountant or a lawyer or somebody who with a lot of experience in IT. Uh, you'd want to be able to list all of those out and then ask applicants to reflect against those lists what their own attributes are in relation to the ones that you've stated are desirable for you uh, for a strong board member who would be able to engage well. Uh, we're going to be doing this through an open call process, advertising our vacancies uh, for committees as well as for the board. Um, and to be able to recruit people in uh, based on not only their CVs, but also their statements of cultural and other diversity um, as um, reflected within the compositions matrix. And I think that that will allow us to be able to have a full spectrum of governors who are able to truly engage with the work in, in the kind of multifaceted way that in, really allows for uh, public interest decision making. Barbara, any thoughts on that? Well, basically, I, I just agree. Um, it's having a, a diversity of opinion and background is is important, especially uh, for public members to a board. Um, uh, it can be, though, um, very difficult to find people who are even willing to participate um, on a board. Um, even with all of the resources of our governor's office who appoints all of our board members, um, we have gone months without a full complement of members while a search is conducted. Um, so um, diversity is is important. It's, it's essential in, uh, to represent all of the people that are in the state or province. Uh, realistically, it can be hard to find. I do think that there's some benefit to having a degree of compensation through honorarium or otherwise to allow people to be able to feel that their time is not solely altruistic, although it should be, of course. Uh, but also, I think that we, as um, those who run these organizations, need to be a bit flexible about when uh, we hold our meetings um, as well and, and for how long, and then um, make some concessions so that people are not meant to be 
working during their normal working hours uh, for no compensation whatsoever. It's, it's a it's a tricky game to really work out um, if you're asking people to come during regular working hours at no compensation, uh, but you'll pay expenses. It, it doesn't really make for um, a lot of people other than, frankly, retirees uh, who are interested in becoming involved or, or, you know, some of the truly dedicated, I suppose, would step up. Uh, but it would be at a, a personal sacrifice that uh, I don't think is really necessarily reasonable to expect of them. And, and certainly, uh, you know, the the sacrifices being made by the the, the registrars that are uh, participating on those boards as well. So, um, you know, they, it, I, I agree with you completely. I guess let's ask one final question. I'll start with this with Barbara um, and then uh, give uh, Graham an opportunity to, to close it out. But I guess, how do you prompt and encourage public member involvement during meetings? Uh, well, as we mentioned before, um, it, it can be, uh, serving on these boards can be a, a particular challenge for public members who may not understand a lot of the technical aspects of uh, the policies or the cases um, that are brought before them. Um, so for part of that reason, um, it's important to help public members feel plugged in to the topics and the board. Uh, uh, I know on, on our board, we pair new members with a seasoned member, um, someone who's been with us for a year or two who can help them understand the process of the meetings, uh, just the ebb and flow of the agenda items um, and can answer questions as the meeting proceeds. Um, I think it's also helpful for uh, board staff to check in with new members prior to a meeting uh, to encourage them to ask questions about any of the materials in the, in the meeting packet. Um, sometimes uh, I think people uh, will open up to staff whereas they might not to other board members. Um, so it's another opportunity to just help uh, answer their questions and make them feel comfortable with what's going on. Um, I also think it's helpful um, during a meeting uh, for board presidents or chairs to take care during the meeting to, to stop and ask if the public members have any questions or anything to add on a subject. Um, and that goes for uh, when testimony is being given as well uh, during hearings or policy discussions. Um, just pause and ask the witnesses to explain um, some detailed point or a technical item further for the benefit of the public members to just go ahead and stop and call it out and say, for the benefit of the public member and uh, go on from there. Um, it just kind of helps uh, focus the discussion a little bit. Yeah. And as a lawyer working with these boards, um, I am um, keenly aware uh, that this is all within the framework of the practice of law. Uh, th these are administrative law frameworks that these decisions are being made within. Um, and so we, we provide a fundamental uh, education to all of our board members as well as some well, committee members as well um, around uh, administrative law principles, uh, fairness, uh, natural justice and such, uh, so that they truly understand the importance uh, of working within that. And that, frankly, it's, it supports the decision making because things are less likely to be overturned on appeal 
um, if you've followed the, the basic principles of administrative law. Um, I think that one of the things that we really need to focus on, and you know, and Barbara uh, really hammered on this one, is like the training. You've really got to buddy people up. You've got to make sure that they're uh, feeling welcome. Uh, you've got to make sure that they have people that they can relate to, that they're going to be able to engage with to become acclimated into the culture of the organization and, and feel more um, at peace with, with their position. Um, you know, we all have codes of conduct um, that really direct how the boards do their work. Uh, this typically requires members to be respectful of others' opinions, views, cultural or linguistic diversity. And I think that that gets to, it's not enough to create diverse boards. You have to make them inclusive as well. And you have to do that by assuring respectful dialogue. And I would say that the, the key point I would like to make there is you've got to train your board president or chair in the skills that are, are going to allow that person to be able to maintain respectful dialogue um, and engage everyone in, uh, in speaking, the introverts, the extroverts, the professionals, and, and the public. Excellent points. Well, I think this has been a great discussion. Uh, so I just want to thank you both, uh, Graham and Barbara, um, for your time and being a part of this clear podcast. Um, you know, it's wonderful to have this opportunity to talk about and, and these issues and, and learn from each other. So, uh, so thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you for thank having you very us. Much. That was fun. Absolutely. <laughs> Good. And thank you to our listeners for, for tuning in. Uh, we'll be back with another episode of Regulation Matters, a clear conversation very soon. Uh, thank you to our frequent listeners. Um, you're the ones that have kind of put us on the map. Um, but if you're new to this clear podcast, please uh, take an opportunity to subscribe to this. It's available on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and now on Alexa on Amazon Echo devices. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a rating or comment in the app. Uh, these reviews help us to improve our ranking and make it easier for new listeners to find us. Feel free to also visit our website at www.clearhq.org for additional resources and a calendar of upcoming training programs and online events. And finally, thanks to our CLEAR staff, uh, specifically Stephanie Thompson, our content coordinator and editor for our program. I've made her work a little bit harder today. Um, I'm Lyme Dempsey once again, and I hope to be speaking to you again very soon.